It's August 23rd, 2020, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Air Force One has just touched down. President Donald Trump is traveling to the convention center where several hundred supporters, delegates, and party officials are gathered to deliver him his official Republican nomination for a second term. 336 delegates and their guests are going to be staying here at the Westin Hotel for the RNC. Social distancing is sparse. Masks seem to be optional facewear. As the president took the podium, his speech wasn't too far from his usual free-form stream-of-consciousness rallies. The same tired mistruths abound, occasionally goading the Republican delegates to push him for serving 12 more years. Now, if you want to really drive him crazy, you say 12 more years. But there's one thing that's different in the president's remarks. He's largely using the past tense when talking about the pandemic. Shut it down, and we did the exact right thing. We shut it down, then we reopened, and that's what we're doing now. We're well into it. But As the party leadership look on and nod in agreement, it feels like some sort of victory lap in the minds of those in the convention hall. But just a few dozen miles away, there's no victory lap to be had, and coronavirus is very much in the present tense. The coronavirus is now a deadly outbreak in our state. This as a new stay-at-home order were issued. 75% of the beds in the hospitals now in the state are full, and those numbers are concerning, and they're continuing to go up. Carolina is at a new high for the number of people in the hospital for COVID-19. In these hospitals, it's not just coronavirus that has the staff overworked and on edge. It's the entire medical system. These are rural hospitals serving many on the lower end of the economic spectrum. For many living in these parts of North Carolina, it's the only medical and emergency care for hours. And now, these hospitals are on the brink of closure. In just North Carolina alone, 10 hospitals have closed in the last decade, with seven of those hospitals closing in the last five years. But that's not all. These rural communities have some of the highest risk pools for coronavirus on top of the litany of other medical needs of these areas. Beyond the hurdles of just getting to a hospital lies a much deeper problem. How can I pay for this? Our medical system was made to fail. Republicans have been elected to produce a solution to the problem we call Obamacare. How how am I going to pay this? And you sit there and you start crying because you don't know what you're going to do. 14 million more people would be uninsured under this legislation, under this Republican legislation. If you can't pay for medical care, you don't go unless you're sick. Sometimes you don't even go then. A common ailment for your kids that used to cost just a couple of bucks to treat now costs you hundreds of dollars all out of pocket. The first bill I intend to introduce in the U.S. Senate is a bill to repeal every syllable of every word of Obamacare. For many people living in America today, there are few phrases more frightening than the words medical bills. For many, these words immediately trigger others like debt, depression, bankruptcy. For Bev Veals in North Carolina, 
medical debt was very much at the front of her mind. Um, I've had three cancer diagnoses. As a 20-year cancer survivor, Veals beat her diagnosis three times, a struggle that included fights around care and medical bankruptcy. When her husband was furloughed in March because of the pandemic, Bev worried about losing her health insurance, so she did what many others at the end of their rope would do. She reached out to her lawmaker for help. I was calling Senator Tom Tillis to ask what type of programs were being made available to people who are self-insured. She finally got in contact with the office for her senator, Tom Tillis. At first, Bev couldn't believe what she was hearing. I just felt like I needed, no one would believe I was being told this in such a callous way. So she started to record it. You're saying that if you can't afford it, you can't afford it, you don't, you don't get to have it, and that includes health care. Yeah, just like I want to go to the store and buy a new dress shirt. If I can't afford that dress shirt, I don't get to get it. But health care is something that people need, especially if they have cancer. Well, you got to find a way to get it. The staffer went on. What are the options for somebody, for a North Carolinian that needs health care? I'm not sure, but I think it's something you should look into. What do I do in the meantime, sir? Sounds like something you're going to have to figure out. As the staffer puts it, Health care is like a nice dress shirt. Yeah, it's a nice thing to have, but they're expensive and only for people who have the money. Getting treatment for cancer, it's the same thing. Health care isn't something you just pick up at a store, shop around town, and save up for. It is, for many, a matter of life and death. The hardest part of all this is when you hear someone from, uh, from a uh, political office as this, say that, well, if you can't afford it, you don't have it. And then I go back and I look at $180,000 worth of medical debt that we wrote off. It makes me feel unworthy of even being alive today. Bev is not an anomaly. There are thousands of stories like her of Americans fighting desperately for medical care. Because I know I'll never be able to repay the debt that I have toward my medical costs. But I'm alive, and I refuse to let somebody demean me to the point that I my life is being compared to a dress shirt. It may be easy to chalk up this kind of response to suffering from our broken medical system as a one-off or a misunderstanding. But this kind of view of health care, this poorly constructed metaphor, actually sums up the entire GOP philosophy on healthcare. It's kind of a business first mentality, one that looks at medical needs as a commodity. And it looks at Americans as informed consumers with perfect information to shop around, price hunt, and use medical procedures as needed. While on the other end, medical providers are competing at every step to lower their prices and increase their productivity in order to attract people to use their services. That sort of world may seem all well and good. But it's a fantasy land. The truth, our healthcare system is a rickety house of cards, one that has some of the worst aspects of both private markets and public costs. It effectively creates a concentration of wealth and premium service at the top and red tape and poor care at the bottom. There are so many problems worth tackling when talking about healthcare that we could publish an entire season on each one of them alone. But for the sake of this episode, we'll focus on three questions. 
First, why are conservatives blocking the expansion of Medicaid? Next, how is our system made to protect the gains of private companies? And finally, what does our broken system mean to the ones left out? For the sake of this podcast, we're going to start with our most recent era in our fight for health care, at the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Just moments ago, senators approved that huge health care reform bill. Thank you. I would now like to call up to stage some of the members of Congress who helped make this day possible and some of the Americans who will benefit from these reforms. And we're going to sign this bill. When the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, many were aware of changes to insurance mandates and coverage for pre-existing conditions. But within the bill was a change to another program, a much more consequential one in the long run, Medicaid. The bill, as signed into law, offered a sweeping expansion of Medicaid, that's the program that provides aid to people with low incomes and vulnerable populations, assistance on things like drug prices, medical procedures, and clinical visits. How states choose to expand Medicaid has huge ripple effects across not only those getting expanded coverage, but every demographic. The Affordable Care Act had three main policy goals. One, to reduce health care costs, two, to improve quality, and three, to expand access to care. And it's that third goal that brings us to Medicaid and North Carolina. Originally, the ACA required that every state expand its Medicaid program to Americans who made up to 138% of the federal poverty level. That meant 17 million Americans would end up getting covered the federal government would pay 100% of the expansion costs until 2020, at which point the federal government would go down to paying 90% of the cost. But the Supreme Court in June 2012 said that this mandate wasn't constitutional, that states got to choose whether they wanted to expand Medicaid or not. And Medicaid is one of the major drivers to getting people access to medical care. That set up a steady stream of states deciding whether they wanted to participate. States that opted in early were mostly led by Democrats who supported the health reform law. And by saying yes to the expansion, they got to take advantage of increased federal funding, which steadily increased the low-income individuals and families getting care. Many conservative states sat out of the expansion. That left something called a coverage gap in most of these states where poor residents probably wouldn't be able to afford health insurance on the exchanges, but still made too much to qualify for Medicaid. So we created a system of haves and have-nots. States that expanded Medicaid and states that didn't. But that didn't happen on its own. It took tons of political capital to block what was considered by so many experts and caregivers to be a no-brainer. There's a myopic view from some that healthcare should be run like some sort of well-oiled business, that those who need more healthcare are really just moochers pulling down the healthy, that wherever possible, we should limit the amount the government spends to make sure there's enough for the rest of us. The problem is that couldn't be more divorced from how healthcare actually works. The reality is, with millions of lives and billions in tax dollars at stake, 
conservatives decided that talking points and party orthodoxy were more important. But it's one thing to hold ideas in the abstract. So let's talk about what it's like on the ground, what healthcare really looks like in practice. Dr. Richard Pomerantz is a pulmonologist in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've been a physician for 25 years and been practicing here in Charlotte, North Carolina for the past 13. As Dr. Pomerantz puts it, we may have great doctors and great nurses, but if patients aren't able to visit a healthcare provider or access treatments, then we really don't have great care at all. If they didn't have coverage for their care, or they didn't have coverage that included pharmacy benefits, it was very difficult for people to access care. So I would see a lot of patients in the hospital who would come in who may have had asthma for a long time, maybe borrowed their friend's inhaler or cousin's inhaler, and they kind of got by. Occasionally, they'd have to go to an urgent care and get some medicines if they had a flare-up, but they never really had formal care. This rationing of medicine comes down to one key factor, price. But the medicines are so expensive that they just can't afford them. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen people in the hospital, then walked over to my office, picked up samples for them, and actually provided them to them on the way out of the hospital because I knew that they would not have access to anything. We knew that we would have trouble getting the medicines. And so I would either make medicine changes. I would say, well, we can't get you this particular inhaler, which would really be the ideal therapy for you. So instead, we'll leave you on an inferior treatment. We'll leave you on prednisone, for example, which is not the way that asthma is treated for most patients. And there's a lot of downsides to it. The lack of access to care, the lack of access to prescription benefits has been a tremendous problem. And it, and it really uh, rears its ugly head when people are admitted to the hospital with a worsening problem. For too many, the choice between getting effective preventative care or going months or years without medical examination all comes down to the steep expenses a single doctor's visit can incur. These aren't just for common colds or the flu. These are serious illnesses. And the compounding effect of delaying basic care and screening can be life-threatening. Additionally, the other side of it is that we would see people who would delay care, that would bother coming in for conditions. They maybe have a cough. I've seen people that have been coughing up blood for, for a month or more and thinking that it was just going to go away because they've handled it that way before, when in fact they had lung cancer. They knew that going to the hospital would be very expensive. A simple prescription, a screening, a medical opinion, these are basic aspects of medical care that are out of reach simply because the financial burden is too high. And the result, a death sentence. So there's two different systems that go on. There's people that have insurance, there's people that don't. And not being able to expand that is really uh, it's a tragedy of modern medicine. Uh, we have the, the capability of doing these things. We have the medicine, we have the technology, but not everybody can access it. In a statewide survey of adults, nearly half of the uninsured in North Carolina reported foregoing necessary care because of the cost. For people with insurance coverage, that figure is only 10%. The survey found that lack of coverage also adversely affected health because the uninsured are less likely to get preventive screenings or ongoing care for chronic conditions. The expansion of Medicaid would provide assistance to that coverage gap, giving low-income families treatment options. 
Because when North Carolinians, and millions of other Americans for that matter, have to weigh thousands of dollars in medical bills for basic care and treatment, they don't seek out easy fixes that would prevent much more catastrophic problems. So if you can ask anybody who's ever been to the hospital who gets an itemized bill how expensive their hospitalization is, it is shocking. The cost of receiving care in a hospital is many, many times higher than it would be if you could receive that care in the outpatient setting. Anything you can do to prevent somebody from having to go to the hospital is economically a much better option. These costs are hurting our families and our older citizens, forcing North Carolinians to make tough decisions between caring for their health or paying their bills. After higher out-of-pocket health care costs are taken into account, 44% of elderly North Carolinians live in poverty. This is unacceptable. These failures force doctors like Dr. Pomerantz to take on the role of more than just a health care provider. So he becomes a de facto social worker, an advocate, a financial advisor. 50% of my time is not going over their symptoms or going over more advanced treatment options. It's going over things which are pretty basic in pulmonary medicine, but because they can't get medicine, I need to go over in detail how we can do that. Part of being a doctor now is being a social worker. Nothing against social workers. They do a fantastic job. Unfortunately, that's not my expertise that I bring to the table, but that's what I have to spend my time doing, which I never dreamed I'd ever have to do. So in the midst of the healthcare crisis, how did it get this way? We passed a sweeping first step with the Affordable Care Act nearly a decade ago. So why does this progress on health care feel so stalled for so many? For that, we have to look at the people who set our health care system up to fail. Dr. Pomerantz says there are people in North Carolina who stonewalled the expansion of Medicaid. In North Carolina, the Republican legislature uh, refused to negotiate it, refused to allow for it. And before our current governor, the previous governor would never even consider that. And it has become a very partisan fight over something which is pretty basic, which is people being able to get health care. And not having it has hurt people tremendously. The governor says that Medicaid expansion won't cost the state anything. The Senate leader says there's no such thing as free money. Someone always has to pay. 37 states have now expanded Medicaid. Here in North Carolina, you know this isn't about politics. This is about people's lives. This is about people's businesses. This is about the future. Senate leader defended the decision not to include Medicaid expansion. And it's been our uh, opinion that uh, taking on that additional obligation is not something that uh, makes fiscal sense for us. You know, the fact that we have no real conversation is probably what bothers me the most. It was a, a punch to the throat to think that they were going to cut it back. Uh, that was very gut-wrenching. It was very hard to hear that because I knew that it would no longer allow for the care that, uh, that we would be hoping for and that it would be a fight. Which brings us back to Tom Tillis, the senator whose staffer you heard speaking to Bev. Good morning, everybody. I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to speak with you again. I send greetings from Washington, D.C. Before Tom Tillis became a U.S. senator, in 2011, he was Speaker of the House in North Carolina. As Speaker... Tillis and the rest of the Republican legislature made it abundantly clear that they were going to dig in their heels on health care and block the expansion of coverage. 
We've been in the we've had 12 legislative days since we came back into session at the end of January. We have said no to state exchanges. We've said no to Medicaid expansion. We have said that it was important for us to keep this going. We don't want people to forget the devastating implications of Obamacare. We have to repeal it. As they put it, expanding Medicaid would cripple the state's ability to provide health care to its residents. And tackling prescription drug pricing, not happening. Well, we were at a time period where anything that had the label Obama on it was a difficult sell in a red state. But, you know, Medicaid expansion does a lot of good things for a state besides just saving people's lives and getting them coverage. Andy Slavitt was the Obama administration's acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. He was there in the administration while states like North Carolina fought against Medicaid expansion. Slavitt was instrumental in working with conservative states to adopt a form of Medicaid expansion. And for many states, it worked. I mean, look, at it, it, the most basic level, most Americans wake up every day and don't know that if, if someone gets sick in their family, whether they'll be able to afford to take care of the, them or not. And that's, a, that's, as a, that's about as existential of a view as it gets. But in some states, like North Carolina, any effort to expand was dead on arrival. And now, in hindsight, we have a pretty clear picture in comparing states that did expand with those that didn't. Well, we've had kind of a five-year double-blind clinical trial, if you will, between states that expanded Medicaid and states that haven't. And, and after five years, uh, a lot of research has been done. So we no longer have to argue about the politics of Medicaid expansion. We can actually talk about what it achieved. You know, it, it reduced cancer mortality. It reduced cardi cardiology mortality. It reduced disparities between white and black. It increased home ownership. It decreased payday lending. It decreased bad debt in hospitals. It decreased maternal mortality. It decreased infant mortality. It improved uh, incomes. Those are all independent studies done comparing what happened to Medicaid expansion states versus states that didn't choose to expand Medicaid. And by the way, they, all those states that expanded are in better budgetary position and have grown their economy greater than those that didn't. When it came to expanding Medicaid, Tillis had the legislature sit on its hands. Meanwhile, rural hospitals were closing and people were still falling through the gap in coverage. But Tillis and the conservatives in the legislature pushed back, scheduling votes to stop Medicaid expansion while whipping support against Obamacare to repeal it without a plan to replace it. Doctors, experts, and constituents all fought tooth and nail to be heard on why expansion was not just the right thing to do for citizens, but actually save the state money. Which is what's so ironic about the conservative position on health care reform. When taken in total, health care reform actually costs states less money across the board. Something that drives me personally a little bit crazy is I am paying that money. I'm paying that money in taxes for Medicaid expansion. But my dollars are leaving North Carolina and they're going to all the other states that have expanded Medicaid. And that money is not rebounding and coming back into North Carolina. And that would help my local economy. It would help support my nonprofit hospital that I work at. Um, it would help all of the other vendors that work locally. So I'm mad that I have this money, which can be accessed, but my legislature has not agreed to do that. So by not having that available, 
That money then leaves our community and it goes to other communities. Remember, too, that this is all happening in a state where hospitals are closing in its poorest communities, making it that much harder and that much more expensive to get basic care. As North Carolina fights the coronavirus today, the burden of those years wasted by not expanding Medicaid is heavier than ever. It's built in a very inequitable fashion. If you live in the wrong zip zip code, if you're the wrong race, if you're in a rural community, if you've got the wrong level of income, the healthcare system, as challenging as it might be for other people, is massively more challenging because it doesn't work around people's lives. So, you know, we're paying too much for this system. It doesn't deliver great results and it doesn't give people a good experience. Uh, and so, we, you know, we've got to, I think I would start by going at those three, those three big pieces. Tillis would go on to run for Senate in North Carolina, winning his race in 2014. Is Tom Tillis, and I'm the next United States Senator from the state of North Carolina. In no short amount of time, the people of North Carolina found out firsthand the priorities of their new senator. He voted seven times to repeal the Affordable Care Act. The fact is that the repeal and replace bill, which Republicans pushed repeatedly, significantly reduced protections for people with pre existing conditions. Well, Chris, that, that's actually one of the reasons why I think it was a courageous vote. And Trump now says the GOP will be the, quote, party of great health care. The administration, in a new filing, asked the Supreme Court to abolish Obamacare, the health care program on which more than 20 million Americans depend. Obamacare is a disaster. And if the Supreme Court rules that Obamacare is out, we will have a plan that's far better. North Carolina, under Speaker Tom Tillis' leadership, refuses to address Medicaid. The coverage gap grows, bringing with it increased cost of medicine and care. Years of delayed care due to the high price of medicine leads to dramatically increased risk of serious fatal complications. Now, a deadly pandemic is spreading across the state, killing those put at risk from our system's failure. We have citizens that are contracting the virus through no fault of their own, We're putting them through invasive procedures to keep them stable. And at the end, we're stiffing them with a bill for tens of thousands of dollars, if they're lucky. People will tell you, as a critical care doctor, we don't really get mad. We don't have high emotions. We are a pretty level-headed crew. We have to be. And uh, it was costing people's lives. It still is costing people's lives. I can't, as a doctor, sit on the sideline and not advocate for people to have access, especially since it's something which, honestly, as a taxpayer, I'm already paying for All of this so far only answers one half of the equation. Yes, creating access and coverage to medical care goes a long way towards fixing our health care. But there's another important question. What's driving these out-of-control prices? How can we make care more affordable for individuals and governments in the first place? This is Dean Baker. He's an economist and founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. His work is focused on areas of the economy that are badly misunderstood in the public debate. We give a drug company a monopoly for a period of time on any drugs they develop, which allows them to sell the drug at a price that's far, far higher than what it would sell for in a free market. So this is a massive increase in drug prices. When we look at drug prices, that's the story. 
If success is measured by return on the dollar, the pharmaceutical industry made a killing. Soaring drug prices, even sometimes for new versions of old drugs. Cost remains an enormous burden for some patients. 30 million Americans are going to buy a lot more drugs, and revenues for the drug companies are going to go through the roof. When it comes to the skyrocketing cost of care, Baker says to look no further than one issue, drug patent monopolies. Pharmaceutical companies are given 20-year patents on treatments and drugs. Even though the treatments and drugs cost a fraction to produce, the patent owners can and do charge extraordinarily high prices, often only in the United States. And the United States is distinct in this respect. You have patent monopolies everywhere. We're the only major wealthy country that allows companies to charge whatever they want. If you look at England, France, Germany, pick your country, they negotiate drug prices. This is a drug that people need for their life, their health. You get to charge whatever you want. Drug companies claim this is to pay for things like research and overhead, but Dean Baker isn't buying it. The rationale, of course, is that this gives them the incentive to develop new drugs. You pay for the research, and then when you develop something that's useful, you get a patent monopoly, and for 20 years, you get to charge whatever you want for that. So when you see a drug that sells for $300, or in many cases, $3,000, sometimes even $30,000, um, often very, very high prices, that's not because it costs the drug company so much money to manufacture and distribute that. That's because they have a patent monopoly and they get to charge whatever they want. It's not that we need the government to make it cheap. We need the government to not make it expensive. But the problem gets deeper from there. It's important to realize how much money is involved. I, I find even a lot of economists are, are surprised. I have to show them the numbers. I go, no, this isn't my invention. This is from the, the government data. We'll spend over $500 billion this year on prescription drugs. And since most people aren't looking at the GDP counts and everything, give you a basic comparison. The food stamp budget's about $70 billion, And we have huge fights over that every year. So we're talking about an amount of spending that's more than seven times what will spend the entire food stamp budget. And if we snapped our fingers and got rid of patent monopolies and other related protections, we would almost certainly be spending less than $100 billion. Beyond the price tag, many drug companies heavily rely on our tax dollars to pay for the very research behind their exclusive patents. And in almost all cases, there's a substantial government contribution. It's very rare that an industry, that, that a company develops a drug and could say, oh, we didn't use anything from the National Institutes of Health. The government could say, okay, you want to use our research, here are the conditions. You have to charge a low price for your drug. Alternatively, we get half the money. I mean, you could think of all sorts of conditions like that. But basically, the government just hands them the research. We're the only system in the world that doesn't use our purchasing power to negotiate the cost of drugs for our citizens. And, you know, it's a... As a result of that, we have one out of four people say they can't afford a prescription. It's not that we're unable, it's that we're unwilling to take on powerful for-profit companies and draw some boundaries around what is a reasonable price and a reasonable profit to make. So taxpayers pay for the research, pay for the trials, and even in many cases pay for the manufacture of a drug, and yet the company owns all of the intellectual property. During COVID, the broken system behind how drug prices are set is playing out right before our eyes. 
Well, work is underway at a number of pharmaceutical companies while some are screening existing antiviral drugs to see if they work against the novel coronavirus. Other companies are working to develop entirely new drugs. And as we uh, first told you right here on Squawk Box, biotech company Moderna is working to develop a vaccine for the coronavirus. Biotech companies are racing to develop vaccines and treatments for the illness. Some of those biotech names have been up as a result. And you would like to think we would try to treat this as a collective problem. We gave money, and I'm going to pick on Moderna here because I think they're the big villains. We gave them money up front and then told them to privatize the research, get patents on it. So in the case of Moderna, we gave them, I think it was $450 billion. We gave them that amount of money to finance their basic research and their first clinical, first stages of clinical trials. That almost certainly was their entire cost. And then we're saying, okay, you'll get a patent monopoly and we'll see what you want to charge us. Everywhere in our economy, industries are hurting. But for pharmaceutical companies, it's a different story. Too many North Carolinians have seen their deductibles and out-of-pocket costs rise considerably in the last decade with no end in sight. In 2017, the average North Carolinian with employer coverage paid $8,000 a year in out-of-pocket costs for health insurance, more than almost every other state. And while premiums have increased, prescription drug prices are also on the rise. Instead of fighting to lower health care costs, North Carolina leaders have sided with insurance companies and the pharmaceutical industry by voting to let big insurance companies raise out-of-pocket prescription drug costs. We need leaders to stand up for affordable health care coverage and access, but we need policy to address the basic rights around health care in our country. We don't condition public education on whether a child is great at math. We don't kick out lower-performing students because they cost too much to educate. But we look at our medical care in the exact opposite way. We find ways to shift costs, shift outcomes, or make moral claims about the right to care. If someone's sick, they're not a bad person. They just need health care. In the pandemic, this is becoming all the more evident. We're seeing significant spread of COVID-19 across our state. Our key metrics that we look at and are on our dashboard are moving in the wrong direction. Our cases continue to climb, and the percent of tests that are positive continues to be high. Our hospitalizations are at some of their highest levels since the start of this pandemic in the mid-800s. To create a healthier North Carolina, expanding Medicaid might at the same time be the biggest and the simplest step. But the state must also do more to reduce the causes of poverty and close the racial gaps in health conditions. A lot of the opposition to expanding Medicaid was, I, I think it was just kind of straight out racist. So from the standpoint of a state, it's very hard to see what the argument is. Why would you be opposed to doing that? They stigmatize being poor. They stigmatize having a mental illness. They stigmatize having a inferior type of insurance. And largely they self-stigmatize. They, they, they don't seek help when they need it. They don't get the care they need. We've gotten to be a very wealthy country, but we've concentrated that wealth rather than used it for social good. And, you know, that, I think, is coming back to bite us pretty hard, and we're seeing it now. The saddest irony of all is that in the face of this pandemic, states that have blocked Medicaid expansion are finally seeing the hard realities and are now pushing to expand the program. 
That includes some of the very conservatives who argued that expanding Medicaid would decimate medical care, like Tom Tillis. This should be really easy. And so I think you have to look at this point in time as different from last year. Yeah, we were having disputes over Medicaid expansion, but then a pandemic happened. And now a lot of people are hurting. Here is the money to expand Medicaid and to get health insurance to five to 600,000 North Carolinians, probably more now because many of them don't have jobs. And they're not going to do it? I don't understand it. There isn't anyone seriously working on fixing the health care system in this country that would tell you our system isn't failing. It's a tragic problem. A tragic problem because we knew the solutions, then passed a sweeping first step, and conservatives sued to stop the federal assistance. A tragic problem because we knew how to close the coverage gap, and legislatures like North Carolina's refused to do anything on expanding Medicaid. A tragic problem because those very same people for whom we made health care more expensive and less accessible are now being the hardest hit by a pandemic that is killing Americans inequitably. The problem is that for too many, it will already have been too late. The human cost will already have been paid. For doctors like Richard Pomerantz, there's another emotional toll of all of these failures. I think people have to make this decision about how they're going to protect their families. Since I'm one of the healthcare workers that actually takes care of people with COVID-19, you have a fear of bringing it home to your family, to come home and to be around my family and to have them get sick before I even knew that I was infected would be a thought that I just, I couldn't live with that. Um, I haven't been in my house in six months. My wife and I had our 25th wedding anniversary. I wasn't able to give her a kiss. Um, I haven't given my wife a kiss in, in, in six months. It's a lot to go through. Now, if it keeps my family safe, I'm fine with it. There's so many different ways in which healthcare providers are making these sacrifices. There's a whole group out there. It's frustrating seeing our leadership flout the rules and uh, because it sets up the example to other people thinking that it's okay. Seeing our leadership not wear a mask promotes not wearing masks in our community, which means I have to be farther and longer away from my family. Though his own administration recommends Americans wear face coverings to keep the virus from spreading, the president is increasingly mocking those who do, calling it politically correct. A lot of people don't want to wear masks. There are a lot of people think the masks are not good. Coronavirus infection and fatality rates are rising fast. The IHME projects that given current interventions put in place across the country, the death toll will surpass 410,000 by January. Healthcare doesn't have to be this way, a world of privatized gains and socialized costs, where those most needing medical care are the last to adequately receive it, where we live with huge coverage gaps in our population. COVID-19 is shining a light on so many problems in our society, but we didn't need a pandemic to expose them. All you need to do is think about the possibility of a medical scare in your life. Made to Fail is produced by The Hub Project, Goat Rodeo, and The Roosevelt Institute. From The Hub Project, executive producer is Laura Hatowski. Producers are Sasha Stone, Zach Price, Sophie Elliott, and Dan Crawford. 
Arkady Gurney is executive director. From the Goat Rodeo team, executive producer is Megan Nadalski. Producers are Shar Dreyer and Zachary Frank. Ian Enright is chief executive officer. From the Roosevelt Institute, our senior producer is Steph Sterling. Our host, that's me, is Elliot Williams. This episode was written by Ian Enright, me, and the good people at The Hub Project. Thanks to Dr. Richard Pomerantz, Andy Slavitt, and Dean Baker. To learn more about how conservative policies have set up millions of Americans for failure in the face of a crisis, visit madetofail.org. Subscribe to Made to Fail on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss the next episode. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation online, find us on social media. We're at Made to Fail on Twitter, Made to Fail on Facebook, and Made to Fail Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.